0: Welcome down. If you're new, you have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm really sorry about that. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can actually download an app. It's called YouVersion. You click on live in that. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get all the sermon notes, the verses, and the questions that go along with what we're talking about today. Someone just saw The Hobbit last week. Come on with us. Hobbit. Woo. Really? That little? And the room was full? It's good, right? little slow you know but whatever The whole 3d i'm like i'm getting sick Ah." someone that bird went over i'm like sweet you know what i'm talking about you gotta watch the hobbit then you'll be in the know seriously come to christmas eve services tomorrow night we put a lot of effort into them uh and and you know maybe you have a neighbor who doesn't really want to come to anything see if you can get them to come to this it's christmas eve like oh i guess we'll go to christmas eve service is a little less than an hour long in and out it'll be great I have a whole lot of fun. We even give you a gift when you show up. See, now I'm bribing you. Show up Christy. a No, last year you got T-shirts. Uh, I know what you're getting next year already, and I know what you're getting this year. Oh, by the way, hey, Paul, run back and make sure Manette grabbed those things. Or Cain. Run, uh, make sure Manette grabbed those things out of my office, because everybody's supposed to be putting those together. Sweet. Last week you meant to do it, and we totally forgot. You have no idea what I'm talking about. That's all right. Why don't you guys stand up and reading the God's Word. We'll get going here. Say. so many things going on in my head, you have no idea, and you thought it was empty. Genesis 12, 2 says this, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people and have us understand the blessings that you have given to us so that we would be those who in turn bless those around us, that we would understand what that actually means, and that we'd be people who receive and then give in the way that you have given to us. Amen. Have a seat. This is Genesis week 47. We're going to get to continue to know this family through whom the Jewish faith came. Again, your Genesis, Christmas at Genesis, you don't get a lot of Christmas messages. If you want a Christmas message... Come tomorrow night, you'll get a Christmas message, and you'll be happy about that. We're looking at this guy named Jacob. Uh, he's becoming the head of this family. He was two to four wives, depending on how you look at it. His father-in-law is a guy named Laban, who's a crooked dude. That's how he got the two to four wives. Uh, Jacob loves one, not the other one so much. And today, God's going to continue to grow Jacob up into who he's supposed to be. Uh, Jacob today will start to live more in line with his faith, but just barely, just barely. You see this recurring theme throughout the scriptures of this covenant and blessing in Genesis 12, 2, which you read at the very beginning, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is God's promise to Abraham, that God blesses him then Abraham becomes a blessing. But what does that mean, to be a blessing? What, What is that? Well, to be a blessing in its strictest term meant to bring a gift or a present or to offer a treaty of peace. So extend it out to God's people. We are to be those who bring God's peace to everyone. To everyone. So that kind of is a Christmas message, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. This kind of functions like the human heart is supposed to function. You know, it's a human heart's a great thing. You all have one. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here. You'd be in the ground at this point. It, it pumps blood in one valve and out another. It receives and it gives and it receives and it gives. It doesn't store anything up, but it receives and it gives. That's true with any healthy Christian walk with God. That's how it's supposed to work. It's true of any healthy church. It receives from God and then it gives. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us that's why we love because of how he first loved us that we don't even love correctly until we understand god's love for us so the same is true with blessings and we understand god's blessing to us which we give to others now today in the united states we have more wealth and more trained christian workers and more books and more message cds and mp3s and podcasts and seminars and seminaries than anywhere else in the entire world and that's a good, that's not a bad thing, that, that's a good thing. But what has happened to us in America is we've become very self-centered and selfish, even though we have all of this training. We assume that a missionary is someone who we give money to and they go live overseas and eat bugs and dirt so we don't have to. But that's not what a missionary is. A missionary is you. If you call yourself a believer, that's what you are. You are to live on mission. At your workplace, if you go to school, it's at your school, it's in your home, it's in your neighborhood. Wherever you are, you are on mission for the name of Christ. You are to be God's blessing wherever you are. So you begin to see this in Jacob. Uh, He starts to turn the other cheek today, but again, he barely begins to be this blessing. But this is extended out, and eventually you see this, what God's people were supposed to become, those who would show the world what God was like. So we're going to start with Jacob. I'm going to take a little detour in the middle of it that no one saw coming in first service. And then we're going to extend that out to Israel's history and then to you and I as well. So we've got three phases. It's okay, I'm a professional. I can do this. You'll be amazed at the end. Uh, Open to Genesis chapter 30. That's where we start. Uh, when you get Genesis 30, verse 25, uh, you, you saw 29 and 30 where Jacob gets the two to four wives. He has all of these children through this crazy scheme that takes place. And Genesis 30, uh, verse 25 is where we left off. So it says, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Joseph is the 11th son, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Now, Jacob has now been at Laban's house between 15 and 20 years. His family hasn't met his wife or his other wife or his other wife or his other wife or his, wife or his kids. Yet, so he says, send me away. Literally in the Hebrew, this is give me leave. These are the words a slave would say when asking for his freedom. So Jacob sees himself as a slave. He says, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Jacob says, you know, I've worked hard, I've worked well, and I know I've been treated like a slave, and you've ripped me off all this time, now I want to go. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So he concedes, Jacob, you have been good for my bottom line. He doesn't really show that he appreciates him, but he knows you've been good for the bottom line. Now, Jacob didn't say it. Jacob is being gracious here. Laban is a businessman, and so what he wants is he wants Jacob to stay and not to leave. So he starts to make counteroffers. And how does he know that Jacob's been good for his bottom line? Well, divination. The demons told him so, that Jacob hasn't been good for his bottom line. Now, that may sound kind of odd and weird to some of you that the demons told him so, but others of you are like, yeah, I get that. My boss must pray to demons all the time. And what I want to do is this isn't even actually part of my message. I've been thinking about this because a lot of the questions that I've gotten in the last week and a half after the tragic things back east in the school, I've gotten a lot of questions. And, and I'm trying to think the best way to, to put that together in the middle of something. We might flesh this out better later Uh, but just go with me. It's gonna be like, that's out of left field. And it is. Because it's not part of my message. I came in and sat down yesterday and kind of wrote something up that I wanted to talk to you guys about. Uh, you know, what do you do when something like this happens, like in, in this place back east? You know what the first thing you do is? You start to pray. That's where you start. You pray to God. You pray for the families and the friends and everybody that's been affected by it, that the people who need help would actually get help. But I need to explain something else to you that I think people need to hear because it's something I believe. And this kind of has to do with Laban's idea of spirituality. Now, In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the armor of God. And he says, you know, why do you wear the armor of God? Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, most people, when you start to talk about something like that, they say, I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't want to talk about that. It's superstitious, you know, this talk of the devil. Aren't we beyond this today in our culture and society? And on the other side of it, people say, well, you know, if we do go with that, well, doesn't that mean there's like God's side and the other side, and that leads to war and bloodshed as well? The passage in Ephesians, it's all about evil. Some uh, people have recently commented that never before, like to the extreme we have today, are people so immersed in horror. That we look for horror today in depictions in movies and games and, uh, and books, this dismemberment and death and grotesque images. They're, they're everywhere. And why? Why is with the cultural consensus, as there's no such thing as a devil, are we so fascinated with evil today? Why wouldn't Newsweek last summer have a cover that says, Why is there evil? How do you deal with evil in the world today? Well, Ephesians gives you, it gives you some answers. And it, it talks, not all the answers, but it gives you some. And it talks about the transcendence of evil, the complexity of it. And if you read the rest, it actually tells you, you know, how it was defeated in the cross of Christ. And Ephesians tells us you know, that we're never going to fully understand evil. When it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, you know, Paul doesn't mean it doesn't result in flesh and blood action. Okay, Paul was whipped, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was persecuted by flesh and blood people. We wrestle with flesh and blood all the time. But Paul says you not only wrestle with flesh and blood. And we look around the world today and we see poverty and injustice and all the terrible things that that happen. And Paul says this goes merely beyond the human. It's more than scientifically analyzable. It's something cosmic. Now, a couple hundred years ago, you know, people took for granted supernatural beings and, and all of this stuff and original sin and the, the innate propensity for us in us, you know, to follow our own evil in our own hearts. And around 150, 200 years ago, that started to turn around to this basic idea that came along in the middle of the 20th century that today evil is always the result of something natural. It's bad parenting or unjust social systems or bad brain chemistry. It's biological, it's sociological or a combination of the two, but it's controllable. And the consensus today is that we only struggle against flesh and blood. You know, there, there is nothing else going on anywhere else, no matter how horrendous things look. And if we just fix the family systems or the chemical brain systems or the social systems, then we can solve all of this. And people think we can eradicate war and poverty and slavery. We can solve this through scientific approaches. And upwards of about 35 years ago, for some reason, this new fascination with horror starts to come upon us. I mean, can you imagine a kid in the 1850s walking around with a book of dismembered people and going, hey, look, isn't this cool? It didn't happen. You know, in the 1800s, imagine a magazine saying, you know, why do serial killers do these things? No one asked those questions because they knew. Today we have a problem because we've thrown away our resources in dealing with things like this because we believe we only struggle against flesh and blood. We view people back then as being, oh, they're, they're really primitive. You know, and yet, you know, it comes to these ideas of supernatural. You're like, oh, well, that's just dumb. And yet, in the last century, we've had more Holocaust and genocide as unseen throughout the rest of history. And there's just as much hatred and racism and ethnic cleansing as there have been. And there might even be more children killing other children or parents killing children. Now, Andrew DelBanco, he's a self described secular liberal. Okay, self-described. And this is what he writes. He says, A gulf has opened in our culture between the disability of evil and our intellectual resources for coping with it. My paraphrase, what that means is that we still have sinners, but we've gotten rid of the idea of sin. And we get rid of the idea of the devil and these transcendence aspects of it. And now we're astounded that there's something beyond us that we can't manage or control, and we have no way of dealing with it anymore. And he says it actually comes to a head in this idea of a book like Silence of the Lambs, right? You know, it puts the lotion on the skinner, or it gets the hose again. Anybody? No, okay. Silence of the Lambs. Hannibal Lecter, he's telling, you know, this, this whole sordid tale to Agent Starling about how, how he's this serial killer and all the things that he's done. And Agent Starling looks at him in the book and she says, what could have made you like this? Meaning, what happened to you? And this is only a question a modern person would ever ask because it starts with the idea that there is the assumption that we are only wrestling with flesh and blood. There's a biological or sociological factor that led to this. I'm not saying there wasn't. I'm just saying that we think that's all that it is. And this is what Hannibal Lecter's reply is. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you say that I'm evil? Am I evil, Officer Starling? And DelBanco writes this, these words are the epitome of modern horror, knowing we cannot answer the monster's, monster's question. See, some people will be surprised at this day and age that anybody would stand in front of a group of people and tell you that I actually believe in original sin, an actual devil, and innate evil. See, but if you want to disagree with me, fine, but what is your answer to the monster? What is your answer to that monster? I mean, you can disdain, you can sneer, you can scoff, and you can laugh, but that's not an argument. The scriptures are the only thing that account for the things that are going on in our world, the rivers of blood, the, the Hannibal Lecters, because evil is natural and supernatural, and the Bible tells you that. And you may disagree, but you can't laugh I mean, You've got to come up with another answer. So many people in our culture, they're shocked and they're horrified by all the things that are taking place, what one human being could actually do to another or a group of human beings. You know, when people walk around and, and they're shattered, Because that's, we're thinking we're only wrestling with flesh and blood. We're trying to figure out how to fix this. We have an inadequate paradigm for the real world in which we live. And our stupid theories for the controllability of evil have left the 20th and 21st century completely vulnerable. I mean, most people in earlier centuries, you know, they would be horrified, but they wouldn't be shocked that, that people did these things. I mean, you have things like Frankenstein and Dracula and the, and the book of Job and, and these crying out to God and why is this happening and the pain that, that's all there, but it doesn't shatter people like it does today because today we've kicked out the Bible's paradigm. and We wander around and we're just lost. What you have to hear me is that we do not just wrestle against flesh and blood. This is why when I say the first thing you do is pray, that's the first thing that, that you do. Now, do you offer grief counseling? Of course you do. Do you go in and talk? Yes, there's, there's all these things that go along with that. But the first thing you do is pray because our war is not just against flesh and blood. And if you believe the scriptures, you know, it, it doesn't make everything black and white. Nothing becomes simple. You understand that when you read the scriptures. But you realize that Jesus has won the victory over Satan, sin, and death, and that's in whom we trust. And if you follow the scriptures, you soon realize that it is not an overly simplistic view of evil. Actually, people who get rid of the Bible have the most simplistic view of evil out there. See, in Genesis 3, the serpent was called the subtlest being that God had created. I mean, So evil comes never simple. It comes subtle. It comes disguised as truth. It's multi-layered. And so we must be careful that the first thing we do is we seek Jesus in the midst of these things and, and i don't know maybe i can make this into a full message some morning for you. if you guys have something you want to talk about in this i can talk, one of the elders can talk to you we can you know begin to watch if you're shocked and horrified and we'll point you to jesus but you must understand the first place that we go in any of this is jesus because we don't just wrestle with flesh and blood and that is why prayer is important and that is why prayer works it doesn't always work the way we think the way we want it to but it works exactly the way god wants it to work now and again, that's my weird little side thing coming back. And you have to understand that this is kind of how Laban lives his life. Laban seeks demons to help him, and they do. It is very subtle in this. And so Laban's a lot like our culture today. And in our culture, you know, it's, we're, very, we're very spiritual. We say, oh, they're spiritual, or they're spiritual, or this is spiritual, or that's spiritual. And we think it's okay. We think everything is spiritual is good. And everything spiritual is not good. You know, it's, like, it's like a cannibal who wants to eat your brains and your body to consume your spirit and your soul. He's spiritual, but that's not good. I think you'd agree, right? It's Satanist. It's spiritual, but that's not good. See, Laban is spiritual, but he's not good. You have to understand about Christianity, first and foremost, that Christianity is not about being spiritual. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. That's what it is about, and that is the author and finisher of our faith. Verse 28. Jump back in now that I just freaked you all out. Okay, verse 28. Laban says, Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me for you had little before I came and has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. you got to see Jacob's speech here. He's not saying, Look at all I did. He says, I worked hard, but God is the one who did it. So Jacob is understanding this. He's starting to witness to Laban. I mean, he's not a great witness by how he lives his life, but he's starting. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So Jacob is working hard. He's working long hours. Laban is rich. Jacob is poor. Jacob wants to provide for his family. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.8 says, anyone, uh, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We need to see that Jacob worked hard and worked well, even in a job that he hated, which means he was working it and he was being a blessing as we need to be. Verse 31, he said, Laban, what shall I give you? So Laban says, well, what do you want to stay? Now, you got to understand, Laban's really sick here. He's negotiating with his grandkid's dad, his daughter's husband. Laban is a lover of money. Laban loves money, and he uses people. The biblical concept, is there's nothing wrong with money, but you're supposed to love people and use money to bless people and care for them and house them and take care of them. Laban is only in things for profit. Laban is taking the food from his grandkids' mouths so he can have more. He's a sick guy. He never, ever once see Laban say, Oh, I love my grandkids. Please don't move. Jacob said, "'You shall not give me anything. I'll work for free. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and sheep.'" So Jacob says, I'll keep working for you, but he's going to want a few to start his little business on the side. Jacob is being gracious. He's being a blessing. He doesn't say, you're the 1%. I'm going to camp in your front yard until you give me all that you have. He says, I'm going to work hard for what I get. Verse 32, let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look at my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled or spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, Shall be counted stolen. He says, You take all the all the white and the brown, I'll take the speckled and spotted. Uh, These are seen as less valuable. People think that there's defective, there's something wrong with them. Jacob knows there's not anything wrong with them, they're just recessive traits. In the Middle East, very few come out speckled and spotted like this. I believe it was Mark Driscoll who said it like this. He said, It'd be like if you worked at a Chevy dealership. You know, and, and your boss is ripping you off, and you say, I quit. And he says, no, 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 don't leave, don't quit. You know, What do I need to give you? I'll, and you say, I'll work for free, and for every Chevy I sell, I will give you all the profit, and any, any Ford that we get in, I will sell, and then I'll get the profit from that. And your boss thinks, this is a Chevy place. We hardly ever get Fords. That's a great deal. All right? So you, Okay, so you go, great. And so you start running the whole lot, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, for the next 10 years, every trade-in is a Ford, every single one. And you're rich, and your boss is bitter, and you say, thank you, Jesus, for the Fords which is not heard much in our world today. Verse 34, Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So Laban goes, Sure, great, good deal. What's the next thing he does? Takes out all the speckled and spotted, all of Jacob's wages, and moves them three miles away. What a nice guy. How wonderful Laban is. This emphasizes that God's grace is going to be involved in this. Uh, Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the whites of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, which is true today too, people start drinking, they start breeding. The flocks... (laughs) First service didn't even get that. That's good. The flocks bred in front of the sticks and so the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. Now, some commentators think this is early genetic engineering of some sort. It could be superstition. Maybe it's something early shepherds knew. I don't know, because all that we know about sheep is they're furry and they live outside. That's all we got. What it probably is that Jacob knows his craft and he's really good at it. I mean, it could be a ruse to take Laban out, but it's more likely Jacob's trying to bring on early estrus. He's trying to bring them into heat sooner so Laban can't pull them away. There could be toxins in the branches that induce this. So so Jacob's trying to be less of a deceiver But he's still, you know, kind of deceiving a little bit. Later he claims that he got all this information in a dream. Yeah, I dreamed it. Whatever. Verse 40. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put down his droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks and the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. For the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. That's the way of saying he was loaded he got a whole lot of money so Jacob's business booms and Laban's goes in the crapper uh, and this leads to major conflict in the next chapter which you'll see but it's this whole idea of prosperity and what we think about it and blessing and all that goes together I mean, what well, you have to understand, you've got to be careful with that word prosperity. TV preachers are crazy with the word prosperity. It's guy's asking for money. His wife's basically got with a paintball gun. You know, they love this section. They just love it. Oh, the speckled and spotted sheep. God wants to give you everything. You just need enough faith, and God's going to give you all of it. But prosperous here is Jacob worked 20 years hard and well. He got ripped off, and God brought about justice. Sometimes God blesses people with wealth, sometimes he doesn't. If you're poor, it doesn't mean you're ungodly. Jesus was poor and he was God. That counts for godly. All right? it, some, some people have a lot of money. That, that's, that's okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with money. It's what you do with it. The point is you always work hard and you're honorable and you don't have Laban's attitude of just wanting money or Jacob's attitude of deceiving. You simply trust God. Now, what I want to do for you is kind of start to extend this out. Because from this point on, what you see happen is uh, Jacob goes through a lot of stuff. He stumbles and gets it right, and stumbles and gets it right, and then he stumbles and gets it right. Vince gets to a son named Joseph. His son Joseph gets sold into slavery, he goes to a foreign country, and, and raises in the ranks in this foreign country so much so that he becomes such a blessing that an entire region of the planet is saved because of what he did. And what happens is then Joseph brings his whole family down to live where he is. And after a period of 400 years, his whole family ends up in slavery in this country where they're at. The book of Genesis ends, and you start the book of Exodus, and it starts with all of God's people in Egypt. They're they a slave to this world power named Pharaoh and his army. You know, Jacob was a slave. You'll see him finally get free of this, and all of God's people become slaves. And they cry out to God, and God brings these people to himself. And when he brings them out, he takes them to a place called Sinai. And at Sinai, he restores them and reminds them of the mission that he gave them, the covenant blessings, that they will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, that he will be their priest. They will be his message to the entire world. And this eventually, they get to a place called Jerusalem. They get a country called Israel. And they get a central city called Jerusalem. You know, this is like city nation. That's, that's like the promised land. They're there. They got, I mean, this, is, this has got to be the point of the story, Right? Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. In 1 Kings chapter 10, you have a guy named Solomon. He's king. He's reigned on the throne of Israel. Uh, Solomon is a descendant of Jacob. You get to... And you get to King David, then you get to Solomon, his son, and the foreign queen shows up in First Kings ten verse nine to meet Solomon, and this is what she says. First Kings ten nine, she says, "Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. God has made you a king. Why Solomon? To maintain justice and righteousness. This becomes a gigantic development in what God's people were supposed to become in terms of blessing." This nation looks like they've taken up their promises. They have an inheritance. They have their land, all of which God promised them. And a foreign queen shows up who does not know God and praises their God. These these once nomads who become slaves now are world-famous people and their fame spreads. So this queen from a place from that doesn't know God shows up and praises God. She's from a place known as Sheba. From historical accounts, she was an exotic beauty like Lady Marmalade. You can sing the song if you want, whatever. And what's interesting, it's debated, is whether Sheba is modern-day Ethiopia, because a lot of Ethiopians trace their lineage to Sheba, or it could be modern-day Yemen. And if so, that would make her an Arab queen, a descendant of Ishmael. That would be amazing, an Arab queen showing up and praising the God of Israel. These are promises coming true. God calling his people to be a blessing, them doing it, this nation a priest, that the world would see what God was like because of how his people lived and people would praise God because of it. And I bet you Jacob had no idea during the whole speckled and spotted sheep scheme that this is where it would actually end up. When this queen comes to Jerusalem, she sees Solomon's wisdom, the stuff he owns, the temple. But she lands her list of praise at the feet of their God who values justice and righteousness. This is a a huge break from any other religion of the day and any other way that God was represented in that day. You take Pharaoh, for example. He's the normal. I'm a ruler. God has set me here. I'm God before you. I will rule over you. You are my minions. And yet this queen learns about this people that they have a different God that's actually a real God that cares about people. And what impresses her most about this God is he values justice and righteousness. That his people should become a blessing. Now flip over to 1 Kings chapter 9. See, if this is where the story would end, was it ended, you'd be like, oh, that's it. That's that, That's the whole point right there, the end credits. But your Bible's heavier than that. There's a lot more stuff in there, more pages. But if that's all you had and that's where it ended, you think, well, well that had to be the point of the story right there. Creation, fall, redemption, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, terrible oppression gets out. People go into slavery, come out, God calls them. They get their own nation. Hollywood ending, bam, happily ever after. The world learns the wisdom of God. That's not really kind of what happened. And you see, just like happens with Abraham and Isaac, and you see through Jacob's life, is that when God calls, they get very excited. Yes, I'm going to follow. And then a little bit of time goes by, and they start to become more and more selfish. And you start to step back and think, oh, I'll just get a little more lazy. And they just get a little more lazy with it. In Solomon's day, and all throughout the Torah, God constantly is saying, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what I have done. Don't forget that you're called to be a blessing to the world around you. And this is why in the Exodus, God told his people, have a Passover, this feast that remembers what I am doing and what I'm going to do throughout the course of history. So in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 15, there's some very disturbing things happening. 1 Kings 9, 15 says, Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Now, forced labor. What's another word for forced labor? Slaves, exactly. Now, Jacob was a what to Laban? A slave. The Israelites in Egypt were what? Slaves. They cry out to God. He saves them. He gives them a mission to be a blessing. You hear the cry of the oppressed. You hear the cry of the marginalized. And now they're in Jerusalem, and they're building this whole empire they have using slaves. The oppressed have now become those oppressors. The same things that God's people needed rescue from. And this is what tends to happen in our lives. Like, look at Jacob. He starts out, he's a deceiver, he's a trickster. And then he goes to Laban's and he gets tricked into two to four wives again, depending on how you look at it. And then he sees what he did to his brother and his dad. I'm sure he's got a little bit of remorse. But is he going to continue? Well, he starts trying to change and then falls back into it and starts tricking again. It's like he can't stop doing it, falling back. He stops remembering what God has been doing. You get all the way to Solomon. Solomon becomes part of a system that perpetrates the same acts once perpetrated on his people. How quickly they forgot. It seems like everything in Scripture, when people get involved, just go bad. you got Noah. Noah gets a whole new creation. And yet he ends up drunk and naked and passed out in his tent. You have, you have Abraham and Sarah. What happens with them? I'm going to give you a child. You throw Hagar in the middle of that, and it just goes sideways. you got Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca's barren. Isaac prays Rebecca. She, she has twins, and each of them pick a different child to put all their love on and to the exclusion of the other child. Jacob loves Rachel, wants to marry her. What happened? They throw Leah in the midst of that. You eventually go through this. It keeps going on and on. You get to David and, and Bathsheba. And because the Bible is always moving somewhere. It's showing you that it's not about a city or a nation or a state or even a people. The Bible is always moving towards Jesus. All the way back in Genesis 3, Genesis 12 to Isaac to Jacob. You know, all the way, God's promise is always that Jesus will be coming. There's your Christmas message right there. Jesus is coming. History is moving in a direction. Redemptive history begins begins because God sought to seek and save his people who were lost. He is passionate towards us. And in the end of the Bible, there's this final city. It's It's a picture. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's a picture of Christ's redemption, that all that was lost is restored, reconciled. God, man, creation, the loss of a garden, the gain of a city, and God's people joining him in stewarding and blessing how they were meant to be a community that worshiped God together. God puts all of these things in the scriptures so we get it, so we understand, we understand the story. Even the speckled and spotted sheep thing, it's in there so we understand. It comes down to understanding what God is like. Is God out to oppress and crush and sap people of life, or is God about freedom and hope and redemption and calling people to be a blessing? So when Jesus comes, he announces the kingdom of God. It's really a very old promise. And it calls people to remember their identity as God's children, to be a people with a mission, to be a blessing. And for us, we've got to ask ourselves some hard questions. You know, where have we left our mission? Where have we not ever lived the mission that God's called us to, to be a blessing? And where in our lives are we truly being the ever-present kingdom of God? And your notes on the questions on the back, you have a few questions in there, and they're very personal. And these questions are, you know, do you seek your own comfort or the call of Christ in your life? Which one are you really seeking? Do you have your stuff, your money, your speckled and spotted sheep and don't really care about anybody else because you got your things, you do want anybody to take those things? You know, do, you, do you have your ways of manipulating others or trying to manipulate God with your sticks in the water like, like Jacob? Have you stopped hearing his call in your life because you've been more into manipulating things? You know, do, you, do you have people in your life that God has placed that you're supposed to love and give to you, and instead you're waiting for them to give everything to you, and you never give to them? All of these things are modern American slavery. This is what they are. And Jesus came to rescue you and I from slavery, from trying to na- manipulate our own outcomes so we can simply trust him and stop falling off the rails like God's people always seem to. See, we are on this blue ball. It's called Earth, if you didn't know that. Okay? It floats around in space, and God has one plan for this entire blue ball, and his name is Jesus. Jesus comes. He doesn't seek his own comfort. He sought to save us from ourselves and our sin. And yet, in saving us, Jesus doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He calls us to be a church, a people who are called out to be his people, his priests, his ambassadors, and his blessing. You see, this is why when there's suffering in the world, you know, first off, we pray because we do not wrestle just against flesh and blood. But we also go and do something about it. One of my favorite philosophers, his name is Peter Kreeft. I've told you guys this, some of you guys have been here before. uh, Peter creeped on his wall in his office. He has this picture, and it's two panels and two turtles talking to each other. And the one turtle on one side, he says, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he didn't do something about the poverty and injustice in the world. And the other panel's the next turtle, and he says, you know, if I get to heaven, I'm worried that God's going to ask me the same question. See? because we are called to be this blessing. We are the body of Christ. God made patriarchs from Adam through Solomon to you and I to uphold mercy and righteousness and justice. And God loves to give gifts to his kids. But part of the reason he gives gifts to his kids is so we in turn would uphold justice and mercy, that we are blessed to be a blessing. And so wherever you are, whatever you do, I mean, maybe you're a student, a carpenter, a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, a musician, a loan officer, a stay-at-home mom, a manager, a sheriff, a tattoo artist, a designer, a computer tech, a grocery store, clerk, an insurance agent. Whatever you are, you are blessed to be a blessing, not to live indifferently. And that's a good thing to think about as you come into Christmas because you remember that Jesus didn't live indifferently. Jesus came and he sought and he saved us so that we would be a blessing. This is why we invite you to communion every week because it's a reminder like God had with the whole Passover. That's a reminder of what Christ has done. That's why you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken us. That's why you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds of his blood that was shed for you and I because of what our great God has done. That's not about you and I doing works. It's a response to what he has done because of his great blessing given to us. We naturally bless those around us. The band's going to come up. They will do a couple songs. And as they do, like I said, you're invited to partake in communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for anything, for anything, you know, maybe, maybe you're wondering how you can learn to be a blessing. Maybe uh, all the stuff that's happened in our world in the last few weeks has shocked you and, and because you think it's only about flesh and blood, and it's more than that. And, and how do you make flesh and blood and, and the things that aren't flesh and blood actually go together and make sense of that? Well, they'd love to pray with you about that as well. If you need prayer for anything, they would love to pray with you about it. And If you've forgotten what the whole point and meaning of Christmas is, coming tomorrow night, we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, there's offering boxes on the side wall on the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So you have that opportunity every single week. And there is some food and stuff in the back so that you guys can grab something to eat, meet some other people, mingle, talk, do do all that. Uh, but most importantly, again, if you have some friends or some neighbors, and you know, just walk over and say, "Hey, we're going to you know the." 7, nine, eleven, whatever it is, service, and you know, for Christmas Eve. Why don't you come with us? Invite them to come. I guarantee you they're not going to be disappointed. We've put a lot of time into it, and uh, if they are disappointed, they can have their money back. <laughs> that's a joke because it's free, okay? <laughs> uh, guys, seriously, seek to be a blessing. Maybe, maybe the way you start being a blessing is just inviting your neighbor to a Christmas Eve service. You know, maybe that's it. You know, But hopefully, it extends out more and more and more to everything you do to your co-workers, to your friends, to the people that drive you nuts. You become this blessing that God has been to you. And you live a life daily that reflects that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would understand what it truly means to be a blessing. Not that it's about works and all these things that we do, but that it would be a natural response because we would understand the great blessings that you have given to us. Father, we ask that you would take our hearts... And that we would seek after yours if you as sought, sought us. That we would love because you first loved us. That we would bless because you first loved us. That we would give because you first gave to us. And that we would understand that all that we do is simply a response to the graciousness of you. That we wouldn't become a people who are so self-centered that we stop living on mission. And that we would daily understand that you give us the strength to live the life you call us to. You have never left us alone. And also, more importantly, we do not struggle simply against flesh and blood. And so in what we do, we would seek you in prayer. We would spend time with you as you grow as in the people you call us to be. And then we would live on mission, lifting you up. And that all that we do would bring great praise and glory To you, and the world would stand in awe of the great things you have done in the lives of your people. We ask these things in your Son's name.